All rise, and welcome to this sports court of public opinion we call Foul Play-By-Play, the podcast that provides play-by-play and color commentary on foul play in sports, on and off the field, pitch, court, and ice. I'm your host, the dishonorable Anthony Variano, and I'm joined by my attorney and fellow sports fan, Michael Haas of McClarity and Haas Law in Glendive, Montana. If you're a listener in Montana in need of a defense attorney, don't hesitate to call Mike at 406-377-2654. What's new, Mike? Not a darn thing. Just trying to trying to pretend like I'm a lawyer every day. <laughs> well, let's get straight into the headlines. We've got a lot of them. The NFL Players Association filed a non-injury grievance challenging the NFL's new national anthem policy Tuesday. According to our comrade Al Neal of peoplesworld.org, with the league changing the policy without first negotiating with the union, it will need to rely on the broad powers given to the commissioner, Roger Goodell, through the per- personal conduct policy. Here to explain the NFL players' grievance is former union representative and labor expert Al Neal. Thanks for joining us again, Al. Hey, thanks for having me. It's good to be back on. So what I took from your piece at People's World is that the players' chances sort of depend on the definition of detrimental conduct and whether a majority of four mutually selected neutral arbitrators would consider kneeling during the national anthem to be conduct detrimental to the NFL. Is that right, or do the players have another leg upon which to stand? No, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. You know, so, uh, you know, I highly doubt that the NFL is going to answer this grievance, uh, you know, and change anything. So I'm pretty sure it's going to be heading to a panel of arbitrators here. You know, and the first point, you know, is, you know, as I had mentioned, uh, the personal conduct policy is there. Uh, it has a lot of gray area around what, conduct, you know, detrimental conduct is. So definitely the league is going to be focusing on the fact that it has such a wide berth that, the commissioner is able to move forward with some of these changes. Um, again, you know, that's going to be argued against by the uh, Players Association. But another thing uh, that's going to be looked at is also uh, whether or not um, the league, uh, well, league's anthem policy is consistent with the current collective bargaining agreement in place, right? So the arbitrator is going to look at a couple of things. One, uh, they're going to try to figure out what is the appropriate definition of uh, detrimental conduct in uh, in this case, mm-hmm. and two, whether or not it's going to be consistent with the collective bargaining agreement. And if you look at the collective bargaining agreement as it is in section, uh, hold on here in Article Two, Section Four, scope of the agreement, it clearly lays out that if any proposed change in the NFL Constitution or bylaws could significantly affect the terms and conditions of employment of NFL players then the NFL will give the NFL Players Association notice of and negotiate the proposed change in good faith. Clearly, uh, the fact that this puts in fines and disciplines for uh, taking a knee during the national anthem obviously affects the terms and conditions of their employment. Um, so, you know, therefore, uh, to me, it seems very clear that they did not negotiate in good faith or even make an effort to have this discussion with the Players Association prior to the owners, uh, and the league adopting this policy. So it might not even matter if the conduct is detrimental to the league because of the way in which the policy was adopted. Exactly. And not only that, but, you know, uh, when it comes to, you know, being an NFL, you know, being a professional football player, you know, it, it clearly states that, you know, their conduct on off the field, you know, is supposed to uphold the virtues of the league, et cetera. You know, and it could be argued that the players who are taking a knee are upholding the virtues of a better society, one in which police brutality against African-Americans, you know, rapid racism, uh, xenophobia, and just this overall, you know, culture that exists, 
you know, is part of uh, maintaining that uh, that integrity of the league. Well, it certainly seems the conduct has been detrimental to the league if you consider television ratings. A survey released in February found that 50% of U.S. consumers who watched less football in 2017 did so because of the anthem protests. But in-game advertising revenue actually increased. So what qualifies as evidence of detriment in your legal opinion, Mike? Is losing fans enough, or does evidence of detriment have to be quantified in dollars? I don't think losing fans is enough. I think it would have to go more towards the losing dollars. And um, I did like what Al brought up regarding the good faith. I think, not to spin this kind of back on Al, but so then do you think the NFL acted in bad faith then if we're going to throw these legal terms around? Uh, I, you know, I think I think the NFL did act uh, in bad faith by not adhering to the terms of the contract. Uh, and I also think, you know, they acted in bad faith given the fact that uh, Kaepernick's collusion grievance is still going through the system uh, and that a big uh, part of the argument there is that Donald Trump uh, had a key role in, uh, you know, Kaepernick, you know, in Kaepernick's collusion case and the reason why he's been sidelined and blacklisted. And if we look at how some of these conversations went down, uh, several NFL owners had uh, private phone conversations with Donald Trump, who basically made it clear that this issue was something that they weren't going to win because this was something he was taking on personally and kind of sort of leveraged that against them. And then all of a sudden, you see this policy come through in May when the owners weren't even uh, on the same page in the first place. And then I guess, I guess to further answer your question, Anthony, I mean, regarding dollars and cents, I think that's what it all boils down to when you're talking about any corporation. Um, they can hide behind the TV ratings all they want, but if they're not losing money, I don't think they've got a leg to stand up. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of the uh, Kaepernick collusion case, uh, we'll go right on to uh, headline two. Uh, in more NFL legal news, the NFL is asking arbitrator Stephen Burbank to issue a summary judgment in Colin Kaepernick's collusion lawsuit against the league, which would bring an end to the saga and get, give NFL owners another win in the anthem front. Burbank's refusal to issue a summary judgment would allow the grievance to move forward and allow Kaepernick an opportunity to collect. The NFL, according to Mike Florio of Pro Football Talk, hopes to force Kaepernick to put his cards on the table and prove they have enough evidence of collusion to continue the lawsuit. So even if the NFL doesn't get the summary judgment, they'll know the trial plan of Kaepernick's team of lawyers. Law requires all facts to be viewed in the most favorable light towards Kaepernick, meaning it shouldn't take much to force the continuation of the case. Is the NFL just hoping to end this before it starts, Mike? Because wouldn't Kaepernick's team be required to share their evidence prior to a trial anyways? Well, regarding a civil case, um, I mean, I, I deal primarily with criminal clients, and the criminal rules of evidence are much different than the civil rules of evidence, but yes and no. Um, in the civil world, you don't have to give up everything you've got before you go to trial because you kind of bring it in, you know, a recorded phone call or something like that. But let's pretend that um, one of the owners maybe had a conversation with somebody and, you know, discussed uh, the Kaepernick issue or whatever. Mm-hmm. So something you could have if I was Kaepernick's defense team, or not defense team, but attorneys, um, would be as if I know what was said in that conversation. I'd put that owner, you know, on the stand and have a discussion, let him lie, and then bring up that uh, show that he's a liar, you know, kind of like a smoking gun or something like that. Right. So if you're using it to, in that fashion, you don't have to disclose. 
Well, I'm assuming Kaepernick doesn't have a recording of a phone call with an NFL owner saying, I can't hire you because other owners said so. But could the owner's recently adopted national anthem policy be evidence of collusion, even though it didn't receive an actual vote? And if not, what about the statement made by Commissioner Roger Goodell that the policy received unanimous support from owners? Could that be admitted as evidence? What could Kaepernick possibly have to prove collusion besides the statistics of his last season being better than most backup quarterbacks who played? Oh, geez. Um, That's a toughie, huh? Well, that's a toughie, and I think it's... uh, I mean, I don't don't know how to answer that. Um, If Al's on the line, if he's got something to say... um, (laughs) Feel free, Al. Jump in here. Yeah, so I'll jump in. So a couple of things. So I know uh, there were a couple of inside sources, um, and the reason, you know, we know that conversation between uh, Jerry Jones, Dallas Cowboys owner, uh, Robert Kraft, you know, the Patriots, took place was that in some of the uh, sworn affidavits that were presented, uh, you know, these conversations were detailed um, between the owners and Donald Trump, you know, as well as the fact that... uh, you know, it's one of those things where the case hinges on these testimonies from these owners. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were various reports after the policy was implemented that several team owners uh, came out publicly against the policy uh, and also said that they would, uh, one, take care of the fine themselves right. and never really find the players or discipline the players for taking that action. The New York Jets and CEO. Two, exactly. And two, I think the other part is that uh, something that, you know, is really important to this case is that uh, Kaepernick's defense team uh, has issued a subpoena for Donald Trump's testimony. Hmm. You know, I, I'm not sure that, you know, he'll answer that or if he'll ever go on record on it. But, you know, I think it says a lot that there is enough, that, you know, the defense team has enough uh, in regards to Trump's involvement that they feel comfortable with issuing that subpoena and going on record. Uh, letting the media know that. Um, yeah, but you know, so does Robert Miller, and he hasn't gotten Trump right. to say a word. Right, exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's a very tricky situation, especially since, you know, there uh, there's, I would say, you know, when it comes to arbitration, there are certain rules that are more lax than others, and it all depends on who the arbitrator is, their background when it comes to arbitration cases, et cetera. Um, you know, but I think just in general, overall, with the collusion grievance as well as the class action grievance, you know, a lot of this is also going to rest on can the players' union and the players prove that there was past precedent established that it was not detrimental and that NFL owners did not have an opinion either way whether the players took any or stayed standing. And I think, you know, it's been been fairly clear through the coverage in the news, you know, that for a long period of time, owners have been telling the same line, you know, we allow our players to take whatever actions they deem necessary, et cetera. Um, and again, you know, one other argument that could be made through the National Labor Relations Act, and even the Supreme Court, is that certain there are certain political activities that are protected as considered activities. Uh, and an argument could be made that with Donald Trump's attacks against the players taking any calling for them to be sidelined, to be fired, calling them some suspicious, mm-hmm. that their continuing that taking any protest during the national anthem could also be directed towards the fact that they are protesting uh, an adverse effect uh, to their actions that's being promoted by an outside party, mm-hmm. uh, especially an outside party that is very much tied into the owners and management of the league. 
All right. Well, thanks for informing us again, Al, and joining us uh, on Foul Play-by-Play. We look forward to having you again, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, Cheats of the Week. Welcome back to Foul Play-by-Play. It's the sports podcast that covers the cheats, cheap shots, and alleged criminals in sports for the week. This is our favorite segment. It's called Cheats of the Week. Our dishonorable mention this week is New York Yankees outfielder Brett Gardner, who told Newsday he wasn't happy about being fined thousands of dollars for taking too long to get into the batter's box. Gardner complained about pitchers throwing to bases to waste time while he takes three seconds too long to get in the box. Gardner isn't the first or only player fined for pace of play violations. Adam Jones told MLB Network Radio he was fined $50,000 last year for violating the rules. I don't think Gardner has a good argument here because throwovers are necessary legal in-game action while Gardner tightening his batting gloves or adjusting his nut cup is simply inaction. What do you think, Mike? I'm actually going to kind of throw Gardner a bone here. Um, I think, I don't know if I've told our viewers, but I mean, I've told you many a times I'm getting sick of the way we're trying to speed up baseball. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, we allow pitchers to do, go through their little routine little routine and i mean they've quickened it up a bit but i mean they can grab the sandbag all they want throw over as many times as they want and batting is not an easy thing so i mean everybody gets they've got their little rhythm they go through every time yeah um so i mean i don't know i i think it's just stupid that we're fighting them for i guess playing the game we want to see the best game we can and that i guess takes their little routines um we have to take their little routines they do even if it costs us a little time, you know. Yeah. Well, let's uh, get into the Bronze Balls winner of this week. Uh, owner of the Bronze's Balls is New England Patriots receiver Julian Edelman for appealing his four-game performance-enhancing drug suspension and losing. Winner of the Silver Syringe this week is Indianapolis Colts running back Robert Turbin, who is also facing a four-game suspension for performance-enhancing drug use, which he confirmed on Twitter. And our two-bit cheat of the week is my boy, Grayson Allen, who got tangled up with the Atlanta Hawks' Trey Young in this final summer league game for the Utah Jazz. A more apt description of the incident might be that Allen tied up Young, with his arms draped over Young's shoulders in what was at least an intentional foul. Allen received a personal foul, and then technicals were given to both players for the foul play after Allen's foul play. I don't know about you, Mike, but I kind of like this attitude of Allen showing up early in his NBA career because I think he can make up for some of his defensive inability by flirting with the boundaries of foul play. It's also hella fun to watch, uh, given his history. What do you think? Duke basketball is what it sounds like. That's right. Uh, Slap well, on the floor and your opponent. <laughs> yeah, they've uh, they've always played a little dirty over there. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it makes it more fun to watch, and I kind of want to chime in with a little joke. I mean, I what what is the deal with the summer the summer league. I mean, why is it a thing? Well, it gives rookies a chance to play against NBA uh, competition for the first time. Okay. I mean, that's the only, I mean, Allen's not the same caliber of talent as a lot of uh, the other rookies. So right. I guess, so, I mean, this it does, I guess, it make, gives us something to talk about. Yeah, it's something to watch. I mean, did you watch that video? It, it, it was a pretty egregious foul by Allen, but uh it wasn't tripping, you know. I think he's found the uh, the happy area between uh, an intentional foul and uh, a common foul. Yeah, after years of practice, it, really, <laughs> it only took four years of college for him to find yeah. that happy spot. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll be back with more headlines right after this. Welcome back to Foul Play by Play. If you're new to the show, you can find us on iTunes by searching Foul Play by Play. You can follow us on Facebook uh, at Foul Play by Play. 
And you can email us at foulplayplay at gmail.com if you have questions or if you'd like us to discuss something on the show. Here's some more headlines. Disney's $71.3 billion offer for the movie and television assets of 21st Century Fox has been granted provisional approval by the Department of Justice, as long as Disney sells the 22 regional sports networks it would acquire in the acquisition. While Comcast could still outbid Disney for Fox's assets, they too would likely be required to sell the regional sports networks in order to receive DOJ approval. With Disney's assets already including ESPN and ABC programming, the homes of Monday Night Football, the NBA playoffs, and NBA Finals, the company that rode the coattails of a cartoon mouse to mountains of money has found plenty of new ways to invade your home. But Disney's potential acquisition of Fox's assets opens doors at the box office as well uniting the Marvel Cinematic Universe to include the X-Men, Fantastic Four, and Deadpool, along with Disney's Avengers and Black Panther. The condition of divesting Fox's RSNs demanded by the DOJ is intended to preserve competition and protect consumers from monopolistic price gouging. But will it? Andrew Buckholz of Awful Announcing expects Comcast, holder of the second-most RSNs behind Fox with seven, Charter, owner of five RSNs, and AT&T, owner of three RSNs, and a minority shareholder of Seattle's Root Sports, to be frontrunners for the 22 RSNs Disney will be forced to sell. Sports teams could also acquire their respective RSNs. Yes Network, formerly owned by the Yankees, could once again become an asset for the pinstripers. Eight professional sports teams are featured on Fox Sports Southwest, so it's possible that a few RSNs end up owned by teams, but taking the best offer might not be the best deal for Disney. Selling the 22 RSNs individually might result in the most money made from the sale of those networks, but packaging all or most of the RSNs together in a deal allows the buyer to set up higher price for access because of the lack of competition that would remain, which would allow Disney to, in turn, hike the price of its offerings to match that of the acquiring party, resulting in more revenue long-term despite the lower purchase price. So did the DOJ go far enough to protect consumers in this case, Mike? Because I think they should have demanded the RSNs be auctioned individually with each sold to the highest bidder. No, I don't think they went um, far enough. I don't know if your solution would have, or I guess your recommendation would be the solution you want um, either, just because, I mean, who's to say if they sold them off one by one that, you know, Comcast wouldn't pick them all up and we'd right. be the same prediction. I don't, I'm, I'm frustrated with these kind of rulings and whatnot just because it's fewer and fewer of owners, you know, are controlling the whole damn pie. Right. And us you know, sports watchers are going to be the victims when you've got to, I mean, pay a god-awful amount of money just to watch a crappy franchise like the Twins play ball, you know? Right, yeah, I read that uh, um, basically uh, live sports are pretty much the only thing keeping cable alive. Uh, cable cutting uh, is, you know, non-existent when it comes to sports, and that's strictly because of uh, you have to watch it live. I mean... I I try and DVR the uh, the Twins game uh, just to you know skip commercials, but um, it's really annoying when you get a hold of me and tell me what happens before it happens. And uh, what what's the point, you know? Well, no, and that's the that's the weird thing about sports is baseball, especially. I've tried to do that as well, watch it after the fact, mm -hmm. and there's just something where I need to be watching it when it's happening, or I don't really care as much, you know. Mm -hmm. And I can't explain it. Yeah. Okay, well, let's get into some uh, World Cup news. Uh, Columbia striker Radamel Falco accused American referee Mark Geiger of favoring England in Columbia's World Cup loss to England in the round of 16 last Tuesday. Uh, England fell today to Croatia, so they will not be uh, in the final. 
Columbia was the recipient of six of the game's eight yellow cards, though, and were whistled for 23 of the 36 fouls. Geiger was also responsible for England's only goal during open play, resulting from a penalty he called on Columbia midfielder Carlos Sanchez. Falco thought scheduling a referee who only spoke English for a game involving England allowed for bias, and that, through small calls, Geiger was pushing Columbia toward its own goal. We talked a bit last week about the attitude of soccer players in our discussion of the Swedish coach complaining about the German team celebrating its win and stoppage time in front of the Swedes' bench. And while players and coaches find a way to complain about officiating in every sport, FIFA's history of corruption has to be considered before Falco is labeled a crybaby. I didn't watch the match, so I can't comment on the calls Geiger made, but I don't think I need to watch the game to make a decision in this case. If it can be avoided, I don't think a native English speaker, and certainly not a speaker of only English, should officiate any international contest in which native English speakers are involved. I understand that coaches and captains, not necessarily every player, should be able to communicate with officials. But FIFA is known to have its favorites, and Colombia has never been one of those. England, meanwhile, has exceeded everyone's expectations at the World Cup, right up until today. Even if the scheduling of Geiger for this game wasn't an intentional attempt at foul play, FIFA didn't do much to silence skeptics like Falco and us. What do you think, Mike? You know, I kind of agree with you, and I kind of don't care. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's, it's, I think, just complaining for complaining's sake. Um, I don't have a problem. I mean, you're, I, the language thing doesn't, the language barrier doesn't bar, bother me that much, especially when I guarantee they've got to have in their mic sets or whatever, interpreters because of all the different nationalities and languages involved. Um, I think it would be better if you had a ref that didn't speak either of the team's language, so then you're not getting influenced by either team. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm going for is, uh, you know, players don't need to be talking to the refs. Uh, Coaches don't need to be talking to the refs. Uh, Frankly, nobody really needs to be talking to the refs. Um, So why, why does it matter? Yeah, exactly. Well, let's get back to the estates. Uh, Cam Chancellor has announced his retirement after eight seasons as safety for the late Legion of Boom. His announcement doesn't qualify as an official retirement, though, because he isn't medically cleared to play and is retiring as a result. That means the Seahawks will be required to pay Chancellor the $6.8 million he's owed this season because he was on the roster after February 10th. Chancellor is also due the $5.2 million guaranteed next season, NFL.com's Ian Rappaport explains. I think this is money Chancellor has already earned simply by sacrificing his body to play previous seasons, but some people might be up in arms over the fact Chancellor is being paid not to work, even if they qualify for workers' compensation when they're injured on the job. How do you feel about it, Mike? You know, I think I think you should get all the money you want. Um, the, my thing is, if he's injured anyway, I mean, the, the people are still going to make that argument anyway, being paid not to work. Mm. Um, and I think, as you said, Gated. I mean, he sacrificed his body for the game. Um, and I'm sorry, if it says in the contract he's owed the money, <laughs> pay him the money. I yep. mean, the owners make out like bandits all the time anyway. Heaven forbid a player, you know, get a little of the gravy. More NFL news. The Super Bowl champion Philadelphia Eagles will likely be without starting linebacker Nigel Bradham for their opening game of the 2018 NFL season against the Atlanta Falcons. Bradham, 28, just signed a five-year, $40 million extension with the Eagles. A one-game suspension could be coming for Bradham as a result of a 2016 alleged assault at a hotel in South Florida. Bradham turned himself in and was charged with aggravated battery, but he avoided jail time. Ray Rice was only suspended two games for his third-degree aggravated assault. So do you think the NFL gave Bradham a break because of how he handled the allegation or because we don't have a video of the alleged assault, which Bradham said has been resolved legally? 
think a little bit of both. Mm. And I think uh, I think they had to hit rice hard, no pun intended. Right. Um, just because of, I mean, the evidence that was leaked to the press. Um, so, yeah, I think that's why Bradham's getting the benefit here. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with our Historically Foul Play segment. We're back with more Foul Play-by-Play, the podcast that covers the cheats, cheap shots, and alleged criminals in sports over the week. Let's get nostalgic and talk about foul play of the past when news was delivered on paper in milk and reusable glass bottles. Here's your sports crime history lesson we call Historically Foul Play. On July 8, 1902, player-manager John McGraw earned his release from the Baltimore Orioles and Ban Johnson after being suspended indefinitely on June 29th because he and his players incessantly argued with umpires even after McGraw told Johnson he'd put an end to it. McGraw proceeded to protest calls by umpire Jack Sheridan by sitting down in the batter's box until he was expelled and continued to encourage his players to berate umpires as well. Upon That's his, awesome. Isn't it? Upon his release, McGraw organized the purchase of 201 shares of Orioles stock with John Brush and Andrew Friedman from Orioles president John J. Mahone for majority ownership of the franchise so they could ship players to the Cincinnati Reds or New York Giants franchises Brush and Friedman also owned. This was back in the day of syndicate ownership in the Major League Baseball, which is you know, obviously why it doesn't exist today. Knowing that Johnson intended to move the Orioles to New York and the American League after this season, McGraw secured the rights of four players to play for the Giants, and Brush claimed three more for the Reds, leaving the Orioles with just five players. The Orioles had to forfeit a game to the St. Louis Browns on July 17th and borrowed players from other teams to complete their schedule. Johnson announced the intended move of the Orioles to New York in the American League, and Brush purchased the Giants from Friedman. And in the second year of its existence, the World Series was canceled because McGraw refused to play the American League due to his feud with Johnson. He agreed to play the following season, winning the 1905 World Series. John McGraw went on to win two more World Series for the Giants in 1921 and 22. How much do you miss the McGraw-inspired antics, Mike? Because I think that's the one thing I miss most in this era of replay. Oh, it would be, it would be awesome. Um... I don't even think I need to comment much on it. I mean, just his story is amazing. Um, imagine if this kind of stuff happened today. Oh, I would and love it. If you know, I would love. Go ahead. If they if they took you know instead of taking their anger you know like Jerry Jones and stuff out on you know players like Kaepernick and whatnot, but mm-hmm. took them at other owners or whatever and just destroyed other teams or destroyed the AF and just stuff like that <laughs> just to get at other owners and I, I would love it. Uh, what can we do to kind of bring that back to the game? Um, I think, I mean, it's got to be arguing balls and strikes. I mean, I saw the game today, the Twins and uh, the Kansas City Royals and Lance Lynn uh, didn't get a first pitch uh, strike call. That was an obvious strike. It was in the K-zone. They had a little box up and everything. And what ended up happening is he ended up in a full count, and uh, I think it was Mike Moustakis just absolutely crushed a ball uh, out of the park. And um, that 3-2 count wouldn't even have existed had uh, that, well, might not have existed had that first pitch been called a strike. And I see it happen in every game. I see it happen multiple times a game. And it's not even like, these aren't close pitches. These are pitches that are, you know, in the zone and inside the box, not, you know, on the edge or on the black, as they say. These are these are strikes, and they need to be called. And the only reason they're not called is because the pitcher misses his spot. And it makes me want to uh, fix that problem. I mean, it would be as simple as putting something in the umpire home, home plate umpire's ear 
that just beeps when a strike crosses the strike zone. And, you know, we wouldn't have to get robot umpires. We could keep the human element, except for when it comes to balls and strikes. But a part of me wants this to continue because I have a feeling a lot of managers are going to start getting really ticked off about it. And I really want to see them start kicking dirt and spitting at umpires again. Yeah. And I mean, me and me and you personally have had multiple discussions on um, essentially kind of what they want to do. They want to put that box over home plate, you know, like when we watch it on TV. Yeah. And to me, it's, I like it the way it is now. I like the fact that you're angry when you watch a game and an ump missed a call. Mm. And that's, that's why I think it makes the game so difficult to play is, I mean, you're not, you're playing a game with people. You got to know your umpires. Yeah. They're going to miss calls and you've got to figure out a way to work around that and compose yourself. Um, that's what I think is so fun to watch. And I think I just would like to see some of those old pissed off managers. I mean, I got, who is like, I'm having a horrible brain fart. Ozzie Guillen. Uh, Lou Pinella. Guillen, yeah. That's what I missed from the AL North. Yeah. I mean, Gardenhire and ah. Gian, both in the AL Central, uh, getting ejected every other game, it seemed like. Yeah, and that's that's what I miss, is the intensity, and I mean, the red faces. it's fun to watch. I mean, nobody gets hurt or anything like that. And Well, feelings might get hurt. Well, who cares about feelings in baseball? <laughs> yeah, it is not a, a sport that uh, uh, loves you back, necessarily. No, and there, there has to, for the game to be good, there has to be that, you know, hatred be between the umps and the managers, and it seems like we don't see the antics we used to. But I also find it funny that we just had a soccer seg- segment where we're telling the players in that sport to quit whining about <laughs> referees. Yeah, whining is one thing, but kicking dirt and uh, spitting in umpires' faces and uh, calling them bad names is another thing. Um, this, I mean, that's drama. That is, you know, that's worthy of TNT right there. Is it's, we do drama I, in baseball. We used to, and, and now we don't anymore. Oh, God, in the late 80s and 90s, it was fun to watch. God, just, uh, you throwing me out? No, I'm throwing you out. That's right. <laughs> I mean, I still watch videos of Lou Pinella uh, do his little dance, and that's what it is. It's like a dance, and it's just fantastic to watch. Well, no, it's, yeah, it's kind of like when you're waiting for the closer, you know, to come out of the bullpen. It just, you know, the camera will be focused on Pinella, and it's like, Yep, here he comes up the steps. You know what's going to happen next. <laughs> All right. Well, that concludes this episode of Foul Play-By-Play. Thanks for joining us. Again, you can find us on iTunes by searching Foul Play-By-Play. The podcast is available at foulplayByplay.com. Uh, you can get in touch with us at Foul Play-By-Play on Twitter and at Foul Play-By-Play on Facebook and by emailing us at foulplayByplay at gmail.com. Join us next week for some more cheats, cheap shots, and alleged criminals in sports.